With a new spin on public radio, this is B-Side. It's the copycat version of B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel. So today on our radio program, imitation. What it means to do your best to be like someone else. Our show today in six acts. Act one, evil but not mean. A 30-year-old marketing consultant becomes Austin Powers' nemesis. Act two, Polly Wanted Dictionary. Act three, bad boys gone wild, impersonating an 80s hairband. Act four, faked Alaska. Act five, inside the Indian imitation industry. And act six, it's a small world after all. Our intrepid reporter goes 10,000 miles away only to find kids reciting Tupac. As we take you to the B-side. Stay with us, my friend. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And so we start today's show paying homage to Ira Glass of the public radio show This American Life. It's human nature to pick up phrases and mannerisms from the people in pop culture around us. Like when you see a movie with a memorable character and you figure out you have a knack for sounding just like them. And soon you just can't stop. Kern Shearson is a marketing representative who occasionally morphs into Austin Powers' nemesis, Dr. Evil. It actually started in a professional setting. I did probably a couple of seconds of Dr. Evil. All I ask for is freaking sharks with laser beams attached to their heads. Is that so freaking difficult? The guy who was the vice president of the group and running that office heard it and became fascinated with it. So we started doing it more and more. My father, a Belgian boulangerie owner with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute with webbed feet. I think it really became big in that setting. Working for this company, there ended up being three of us who couldn't stop using the voice. My childhood was much like any other. Summers in Rangoon, winters in Stadt, luge lessons. In the spring, we would make meat helmets. I think much to this may of of our other office mates, went on for for way too long. When I was 15, I received my first cross. At 17, I had my testicles ritualistically shorn by a Zoroastrian named Vilma. Quite breathtaking, really. There's nothing quite so fantastic as a shorn scrotum. As depraved as this may sound, I've actually thought a lot about why I have the connection with Dr. Evil that I do. He's evil, but he's not mean. Not this time, Mr. Powers. Certainly I've never had an impersonation that was this good, that felt this natural to me, and I probably never will again. So I expect on some level that Dr. Evil will be with me for, for the rest of my life. Take the bass line out. You? You don't have to. Bounce with it. Kern Shearson lives in Oakland with his wife, his dog, and his cat named Mr. Bigglesworth. Yes, that's the same name as Dr. Evil's kitty. This piece was produced by Jason Margolis. How to be, no crib on MTV. God only knows, got my mini-me in the GP. See how it goes. Evil's all that I see. You ask me my name? D to the Rizzo, E to the Vizzo, I to the Lizzo. I'm a crazy mother. You all knew that. <laughs> 
The art of vocal imitation is generally limited to human beings. But as it turns out, and people have studied this, birds are some of the best imitators of all. For example, in Maryland, Ezra the office parrot whistles the theme to bridge over the River Kwai. And in Ontario, Canada, a dearly departed budgie named Victor knew over a thousand words, the unofficial Guinness World Record. At least that's what his owner says. These birds are clearly something special, but no bird I have ever met compares to Merlot. Hey Merlot, want to hear a secret? <laughs> Merlot is a five-year-old African gray parrot. She lives in San Francisco with Sole, a 14-year-old son conure, Sheba, a 17-year-old cat, and Carol Fager Higgins, proud bird mom. Here I come. I'm going to get you. Give me a kiss. Oh, thank you. The bird can pick out her favorite toys, play a little electronic keyboard with her feet and beak, and of course, talk. You'll be a good girl. What's the matter? Kiss. Hi, Sheba. Boy, am I glad to see you. Want a banana? What they do is they kind of mumble words. They're, they're trying it out, they're trying to speak, like you're trying to speak a foreign language, and you're kind of mumbling and it's not clear. So you just, you keep reinforcing the words so she keeps hearing it clearer and clearer and she starts, you know, speaking it. You don't reward the mumbles, you reward the good speech. At last count, Carol says Merlot has a vocabulary of almost 100 words and phrases. Can I clean your beak? Merlot picks up some stuff on her own, words or sounds that are especially fun, like sneezing and coughing. But mostly she learns by spending a lot of time talking with Carol. Eventually, if Carol repeats something often enough, Merlot will learn to say it, just the way Carol does. I'm going to kiss you. Here I come. What do you think makes them such good imitators? Well, see, that's the difference. I think they do more than imitate. I think they use words in context. And I, I think that birds, like other animals, just are proving to have much more um, intelligence than we ever gave them credit for. Intelligence and playfulness. Not all the things we humans say are worth repeating. Watch what you say around these creatures. The birds call it as they hear it. And what they're hearing is you. Oh, well, everybody's heard about the bird, the bird, 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 bird's the word, oh, well, a bird, 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 bird is the word, oh, well, a bird, 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 bird is the word, bird, 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 bird's the word, oh, well, a bird, 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 bird's the word, bird, bird, bird is the word, oh, well, a bird, 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 bird's the word, oh, well, a bird, 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 bird's the word, oh, well, a That was Big Bird, with his cover of Surfin' Bird, originally by the Trashmen. And this is a group of young professionals in Washington, D.C., who spend their free time singing and dressing like the Scorpions. Why would a bunch of otherwise normal guys choose to cover songs by an 80s German hairband? Producer Matt McCleskey brings us this portrait of Bad Boys Running Wild. My name's Robert Dahl, I play guitar in BBRW, and outside of BBRW, I'm a management consultant. I'm Berger Bergeson, I play bass. Outside of the band, I work for the Department of Navy as an analyst, and I'm also a Navy reservist. I'm Dave Moran, um, I play drums, and I'm Brad Pitt's stunt double. That's it. No, I'm an analyst too. 
My name's David Lamp. Uh, I also play guitar, and outside of the band, I am a lawyer, and that pretty much takes up all the rest <laughs> of my time. Sam Ledgerwood. I'm the uh, lead singer. I have a day job as a uh, financial analyst with a large IT contractor. Actually, it was entirely Sam's idea. He arranged to sit down with Rob and I one night at uh, a kind of bar down the street, and we went there for dinner. He had this completely serious look on his face and said, Guys, I've had a vision, and it is a Scorpions cover band. I used to listen to Scorpions back in eighth grade, I guess. Um, and back in 1988, my sister took me to see the Scorpions on their Savage Amusement Tour. I enjoyed it enough, and it was enough of a bonding experience with my sister that she bought me a videotape for Christmas back then titled To Russia With Love and Other Savage Amusements. It's the real-life equivalent of Spinal Tap, basically. It's a documentary produced by the Scorpions about the Scorpions following their tour of Russia. And it's basically ridiculous. You know, it features the Scorpions in their sort of glam heyday in really tight leather pants, running around on stage. We ended up learning a full set. We ended up like booking a, uh, a show at a, at a bar downtown. And added nine songs in the space of two months and really pulled everything together and spent a lot of time on eBay and got our costumes and our special guitars and the whole thing. I think about half the people who came to the show came because they remembered some Scorpion song. They had some album and they were like, oh, they were so psyched to be able to, you know, to openly love their metal again. And other people came just because they couldn't believe that the people they worked with were actually in a metal band and were going to wear leather pants. <laughs> I, I think that's about, that's about the 50-50 right there. We are the bad boys running wild! Thank you. We are going to play some Scorpion songs for you tonight. We came here to do one thing, Carbro. We came here to let it rock. But we want you to let it roll! I've got a whole getup ranging from PVC pants and white boots to fingerless leather gloves. I have an authentic Soviet naval officer's cap from 1988, shades, a boa, a red uh, snakeskin print shirt. Uh, I've been known to wear other outfits, but that's kind of my trademark one. At our first show, I was really surprised at how much people got into it. Like, I mean, when we first started this idea, it seemed like kind of uh, it would be a fun thing for us to just kind of do and, and you know, learn a couple songs and you know, kind of move on. The Scorpions were perfect because basically they're they're technically talented and they write good, catchy songs, um, but they're not at least as far as their earlier stuff went was not overproduced. It's not something where you have to have you know millions of dollars worth of, of gear to do and. <coughs> It was, it's all based on fairly simple rock. It's kind of like you could do it even if you got five guys up there that had no idea what they were doing. They could go up there and, and you know, do this like pantomime of the Scorpions and be, you know, and have it Mock be fun. Rock. Yeah. Mock rock. And, and yeah, and, um, and we wanted, uh, we definitely wanted that. I mean, we want to make fun of that kind of style of music, but at the same time, we all really like it. So we wanted that to come through too. This band is all about rocking. It's all about having fun. We have the shows. Um, 
which are <laughs> a lot of fun. But, you know, realistically, a lot of the time, there is no stage, there are no costumes, there are no crowds. It's just us getting together and, you know, in a room rocking. Um, and in some ways, that's the best part, you know. It's sort of the five of us, we get together at least once a week and crank out these Scorpius tunes. range in ages from 29 to 37 and uh, you know we're not quite ready to give up the uh, the whole rock star dream <laughs> you know I certainly am not this audio portrait of the bad boys running wild was produced by Matt McCleskey you're listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and we're celebrating the art of imitation. Remember Madonna wannabes? You know, the adolescent girls who tried to be mini-material girls circa 1984? Maybe you were one. That may seem funny now, but just think who today's kids want to be like. Scary thought, huh? In our next story, 12-year-old Dylan Hitchcock Lopez reports from his hometown of Homer, Alaska, where he found some little kids waiting for their big break. From a young age, kids develop an interest in pop culture, mainly in styles of dress and music. Seemingly as young as five or six years old, kids fall in love with such so-called artists as Britney Spears, Hilary Duff, and Avril Lavigne. Even in places that are slightly removed from mainstream media, like Homer, some such kids have tried turning the common fantasy of being a rock star into a reality by starting their own band. We're spiking Brendan's hair up, and he is looking very weird, and, he... <laughs> and it's going to be very, very funny. So, is this just a group of young kids trying to express their musical selves, or is there something else? The mother of one of the band members gives us her opinion. I think the band is really more about image. For weeks now, there's been a lot of preparation and planning and posters and tickets and hair and makeup and clothes, and we haven't heard one song yet. Now it's time to find out the kids' opinion of what being a rock star entails. So why is Spiker his hair? Because um, he looks good. Is this how rock stars are supposed to look? Yeah. What about what? What do you think of the hair? It doesn't look very good. <laughs> yeah. Sylvie, how how come? How do you know that rock stars are supposed to look like that? Did you do you watch any rock stars? Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen like what she looks like and what her band looks like? Yeah. Yeah. So what do they dress like usually? Um, when Avalarine's downtown, she wears a black long coat. Having strenuously prepared their hair and makeup, the band gets ready to play their one song, Who Let the Dogs Out? Who let the dogs out? Bam, bam. When asked, they all agreed that it was a wonderful piece of work. When my friends and I started a band, we decided to look a little bit deeper, going back to the roots of rock and roll, such as Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, and Black Sabbath. 
But then again, we were in it for the music. For B-Side, I'm Dylan Hitchcock-Lopez. When you order a new shirt or dispute your credit card bill over the phone, you hear a friendly voice on the other side of the line that sounds like it could be coming from your neighbor. But with all the outsourcing going on, the voice could just as easily be coming from the other side of the world. In India, a booming industry trains workers to sound American or British. On a recent trip to Bangalore, Jason Margolis spent some time with some young Indians learning to imitate people like him. How many Americans have ever heard of the city of Chennai? And how many would know it's the new name for Madras? Okay, let's say our hypothetical American aced this one. Could they then chit-chat about the weather in Chennai or commiserate over the cruel fortune of the local cricket team? Oh yeah, and deliver it all in a convincing and polished Indian accent. That's what young Indians are doing overseas, only they're learning about Chicago and Boston, and the Cubs and the Red Sox. At call centers in India, workers who answer phone calls spend weeks learning how to seem American, right down to the most insignificant details. At a center in Bangalore run by the company Customer Asset, dozens of young professionals sit in small cubicles, answering calls from American and British customers. They sell clothes or help settle credit card disputes. Uh, the payment hasn't gone through as yet because we haven't taken anything out of the card. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ring the bank and uh, go, through the, go ahead with the transaction. Right now, customer service over the phone is the hot thing for young, highly educated Indians. In America, the primary qualification for this job is to have a reasonably well-adjusted temperament to deal with demanding or obnoxious customers. But Customer Asset CEO Raghu Krishnaya says customer service is seen differently in India. Typically, people compare this type of work to the type of work you would do in a you know, fast food chain. Within India, we're getting people who are college graduates who view this as a career choice and not just as a temporary job. Krishnaya says Customer Asset recently placed one want ad in the Bangalore newspaper. The company received 4,000 applications. He says the applicants were architects, engineers, and computer programmers. It seemed odd to me that these young people were abandoning their careers to deal with cranky Americans over the phone. I asked them why, and one after another, they gave me the same basic answer. They can make as much or more money answering phones than they would writing software code. And they add, it's a lot more social than looking at algorithms all day. One moment while I process your orders. While I'm processing your orders, I have a specially selected item for you today, Mr. McGowan. 21-year-old Louis Ninen has a degree in computer science from an American university, but he's chosen to work as a customer service rep in India. Despite his American background and natural accent, he picked up a British one as well to make him more employable with two dialects in his arsenal. I was born in Kerala, India, and I moved over to uh, New York when I was nine. And after that, I actually went to school, high school over there, and I also finished my college degree in Stony Brook University in New York. Before new hires can work the phones, they must first complete an intensive training program. This includes watching a steady diet of American or British films, as well as weeks of classroom work. 
Teacher Anish Nair let me sit in on his class one evening where he was teaching the art of phonetics. And the American phonetics has 41 speed sounds. It's divided into various uh, segments. Speed to be honest, I had no idea what Nair was talking about, and I speak American English every day. So I stuck around after class and asked him for a few concrete examples. The word category is category in America, but category in India. So if we say category, it's understandable by an American year, so we try and ask, get them to say category. So what we basically do is try and work on a little bit of intonation, a little bit of phonetics, technicalities, because we do American phonetics, and intonation. So you say mandatory and not mandatory, right? And if you notice, it's just the intonation that differs. We say missile and not missile. It's just that's, that's the only difference we do. But just imitating voices is only part of it. To sell products, it helps if the customer service reps can strike up a friendly rapport with their would-be customers. So employees undergo cultural training. 26-year-old Nita Harihuran explains. About their food habits, about the pop culture, about their clothing, about their, um, uh, basically about everything about UK. About uh, the queen, queen and uh, her ancestors and who's ruling now everything and of course the uh, monuments and all these places where people could go and visit in UK all the tourist spots I've learned about everything and for a final touch Nita uses a pseudonym at work I use my uh, American name Nicole uh, Nicole so the next time you dial directory assistance or place an order for a new set of knives or a Cuisinart you might want to ask the operator how the weather is where they are and where they are for B-Side, I'm Jason Margolis, Bangalore, India. A few years ago, Dave Gilson spent a year living in Namibia a large but sparsely populated country in southern Africa. He taught 6th and 7th grade English in a small town in the middle of the desert. He lived at the school, as did most of his students. He'd brought a handheld tape recorder along, with vague hopes of sending audio postcards back home. But what he ended up with was a record of the many layers of imitation that happen naturally when cultures collide. The kids were amazing singers. They could launch into two-part harmony at the drop of a hat. This is one of my sixth grade classes. When I brought my tape recorder to school and asked them to sing, this is what they did. They belted out this beautiful song that starts off in the local language, Nama, and then switches into English. Pretty soon, kids were approaching me all the time asking me to record them. I wanted to record them doing traditional songs or church songs, but what they really wanted to sing were American songs they'd heard on the radio. This took a while to get used to. After all, one of the reasons I'd come to Namibia was to get away from American pop culture. But my students were obsessed with Leonardo DiCaprio, Celine Dion, and gangster rap. Okay, Frida, what are you singing? <laughs> 
dear Baba. When I was born, my mama had me 17 years old, deep down on the street. Go back at the time. That's Frida. I never see she was one of the quietest kids in my classes. But when it came to learning Tupac's Dear Mama, she did her homework. I was a fool of the big boys broken on the rules. I said, yes, Not everything I caught on tape was so memorable, like this version of Killing Me Softly. As the kids were practicing their English by mangling top 40 hits, I was busy mangling their language, Nama. Before I came to Namibia, the only time I'd heard it was in the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's a click language, and not exactly easy to learn. Here's one of my attempts. Uh, I'm DC. No. Oh, no, no, no. DC. I'm getting confused. I was saying you are 20 years old, but I wanted to say you are 12 years old. Yeah. I never got very good at speaking Nama, but the way I spoke English changed. If you listen to the way I'm talking on these tapes, you'll notice that I've adopted a strange diction and accent. Somehow, I figured this would make me sound more Namibian. I'm trying to learn Nama, but Nama is very tough, you know? I didn't just tape my Nama lessons or kids trying to be pop stars. Most of what I taped was an ongoing mock radio program hosted by me and a handful of seventh grade boys. I should explain that there really wasn't much to do in the town where we lived. We were surrounded by desert in all directions. The nearest town was 50 miles away, and on a good day, the local population was 2,000. There was no movie theater, no TV, and definitely no internet. So the radio was our main link to the outside world, and playing radio with my tape recorder became a regular pastime. I'd record the kids copying things they'd heard a million times, like weather reports. This is the weather report. Mild and cloudy. Call in quiz shows. I have a question for you. Can you please tell me what is the president of South Africa? The president of South Africa is Nelson Mandela. Okay, thanks for calling. Stay on the line. We will come back later. And one-on-one interviews. We want to find out what you want to do when he grows up. I want to be a pilot. Why do you like to be a pilot? Can you please give us reasons? The reasons. The first reason is to fly in the aeroplane. One time, a boy named Gabriel, who was a great storyteller, did a newscast. He was speaking in Nama, and all the kids were just cracking up. (laughs) Then a friend of his came on and translated the story into English. He was talking about how a mosquito robbed a fly, and the kids found it hilarious. Then I realized he wasn't saying robbed. He was saying raped. The mosquito raped the fly. Uh, In this afternoon, uh, a mosquito was robbed the fly. When she was going, <laughs> going from home to work. Okay, that's the end of the news. I was shocked that the kids found this so funny. I almost turned off the tape recorder. But the reality is, this was the kind of news that was on the radio every day in Namibia. The boys were just mimicking what they'd heard. They'd taken something horrible and softened it by turning people into mosquitoes and flies. The kids may have been isolated, but they weren't sheltered from their country's problems. That moment says a lot about the tapes I made in Namibia. At first, they just sound like a bunch of kids and me goofing off. But they're also a snapshot of the town I lived in for a year. My students sang in choirs, but loved hip-hop. They lived in the middle of nowhere, but they dreamt of becoming airplane pilots. And they could spend hours with a tape recorder, pretending to be newscasters, never imagining that one day their voices would end up on the radio. For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson. (laughs) 
You've been listening to B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lisa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. Got something to say about what you've heard on B-Side? Send us your comments, see photos of our adventures in radio, and listen to past shows online at radiobside.org. I'm Mia Lobel. <laughs>